Welcome to Dangerously Likely, I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Terrell Couch. And I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about electoral count reform. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. So last Thursday, the January 6th committee held its eighth hearing. The committee laid out how over a three-hour period, Trump failed to act to stop the assault on the Capitol. Here are some takeaways. Trump did not just ignore the countless number of aides and officials that pleaded with him to call off the attack. He actively signaled that he did not want to do anything about it. There's a pile of evidence showing how closely Trump supporters were paying attention to what Trump said that day, and Trump resisted to really say anything. Trump did not make a single call to law enforcement or even the Pentagon. Mike Pence's Secret Service detail feared for their lives. Many of them called their families to say goodbye that day. An anonymous official stated that it was clear that the Secret Service was running out of options and was very close to using lethal options. The testimony we heard from Cassidy Hutchison about Trump having an angry dispute with the driver of the president's car after the Secret Service driver did not allow the president to go to the insurrection got backed up from a White House security official that was in the motorcade when this happened. And lastly, the committee obtained outtakes of Trump taping an address the next day, and Trump could literally not bring himself to say that the election was over. But it was certified. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was obviously very a very brief uh, rundown of what happened on the second primetime hearing. Uh, Terrell Torrance, uh, do you guys have any uh, takes on this? Torrance, let's start with you. I'll do my best to keep it brief because there's just two points really that I think I want to talk about. One, I think that we had a violent riot occurring at our nation's capital during the certification of an election when we are supposed to be this beacon of of hope for democracy as far as having clean transitions of power. Um, and I think that with the evidence that the president and his team knew very well that the people that were at his um, rally and then that also rioted at the Capitol were armed and dangerous with firearms, um, that to one, send them to the Capitol in, in the manner that he did, but to two, have zero conversations with law enforcement or the Pentagon when you know they're armed individuals, not 20, not a few, hundreds of armed individuals breaking in with force into our into our nation's capital. Um, I don't know that anyone can make any argument that that is not a dereliction of duty and a violation of his oath of office. Um, is I, there, there is, there, well, no, there, there is. I don't know how you could ever make the legal argument that him not protecting one branch of our government is not a violation of his oath of office. He, he took an oath to protect and defend the United States Constitution, including all, all three articles and all three branches, okay? And that includes domestic and foreign. This was a domestic terror threat. There were guns. They were breaking. They were throwing. They were, they were breaking windows. They were breaking doors. They were knocking down statues. They were going into the Speaker of House's office. There is no way to frame this as anything less than, than, than a a terrorist attack, a domestic terrorist attack on our country. And I, and I, and I don't say that lightly, but what else would you call it if it wasn't people who from are from America doing that? 
Right. I appreciate that clarification because that was going to be my one pushback is calling this a riot when it was a planned insurrection to remove the peaceful transfer of power. Um, but, well, and by definition, terrorism, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it was politically motivated and it quite literally terrorized the members of our Congress who had to put on gas masks, you know? And then, and then I got, you know, me really keeping up to my keeping it brief um, <laughs> little intro there. Uh, <laughs> uh, but secondly, um, this, this, oh, geez, guys, my brain totally farted. <laughs> tag in, in people say uh tag in Terrell. i don't know where my brain went uh i mean i think you hit it well i was i was going to play the conservative narrative right and kind of lean on andrew jackson here because i think that's the easiest president to lean on in the space of the president's duty is to protect the constitution and the constitution starts with we the people and that is what the president was doing at that time he was lifting up the ambitions and eagerness of the people to uh keep him in power i I think and i feel comfortable saying that that is a conservative talking point that has been used a lot um but i think one piece that you um that was left out from that context that i do think is important here is as I'm trying to lift up this conservative talking point, the best thing that this panel did or this committee did was highlight those same conservative voices and the fear that they had during that day. You have a video of Josh Hawley shortly after throwing up a fist to all of these angry um, insurrectionists and terrorists running across the Capitol floor in fear of his life. You have text messages from Marjorie Taylor Greene telling Sean Hannity to get in contact with the White House immediately. This has gotten too, this has gone too far. This is going out of hand. So I'm glad that I can stand on this airway and jokingly play the conservative voice and everyone be able to look and see what those conservative voices are saying when they're not trying to mislead the American public to think that somehow President Trump was acting in the interest of the American people. Somehow President Trump wasn't egocentric and thinking that this was an opportunity for him to remain in power. Somehow he was saving America. No, somehow does not need to be said. We know reality. In reality, this narcissistic, egocentric man who has a small demeanor when it comes to losing um, tried to take an opportunity to overthrow the American government and all of his little supporters that are running around carrying out his message saying that he needs to run in 2024 were actively fearful of his death and are their death. And were also prompting up the um, removal of him by his own cabinet. So that I think is a bigger narrative that should be carried here of as we are going to hear from Fox over the, the multiple uh, months, as we're going to hear from um, majority or minority leader McCarthy that this committee is partisan and has no right um, to be airing out this information. We know what they said in private now. We know that they were fearful. We know that they were angry. We know that they felt that the president at the time overstepped his ability um, and overstepped his rights. So listen to them if you really want to talk about conservative versus Democrats. I I remembered what I was going to say, and you guys will recall my absolutely insane response to this watching it live last week was these outtakes from him recording that video the next day is absolutely fucking bonkers i tell you what you know 
<laughs> I tell you what. So it is. It's absolutely fucking bonkers. And the idea that that man was the commander in chief of our armed services, uh, the executive of our government is more frightening than I ever, ever knew it to be, which I, which was a very high level. I would say that it is a, a, a masterclass to, to exceed what I already thought to be a dangerous person in the, in that, in that position. After seeing those outtakes, I mean, that was unhinged, completely unhinged. He's a fucking lunatic. Eh. Like oh. not to, not to make it lighthearted, but like, He's a TV president. I'm not, the outtakes made were probably the most understandable piece of everything that occurred to me personally, because yeah, he knows how to read from a teleprompter. He also knows what he looks like on television. He is a narcissist. All of that made sense. Um, And I had no expectation for him to get out and say that the election was over. That wasn't surprising. So like, yes, I get where you're coming from Torrance. And I know we had this conversation, but at the same time, he was a TV president. What I saw there was the makings of Hollywood. How do I sell this? How do I pitch this? What am I doing? How do I look? And it, it just fits. I think both of you are right. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I do think both right. of us are right. Yeah, yeah, Terrell's very right. But it's like, we, we, we actually, no, we don't need to. We have to stop assessing him that way because whether he was a TV president or not, he was the commander in chief. He was the president of the United States and must be one assessed that way and held accountable as such, whether or not, obviously I know all of the other varying factors. I do believe we continue to let him and his party off the leash by saying, or off the hook by saying, oh yeah, you know, that's just what we expected of him. Yeah, no, we all know he's a fucking idiot, but like <laughs> to see that kind of unhinged behavior is fucking insane. See, I actually would flip it. I think it's important to highlight that because in American history, we have had, Two TV presidents, both, in my personal opinion, are the worst presidents this country has ever had, Reagan and now Trump. And I think it's important for us to keep reminding the American populace and reminding people and using that context of, yeah, this is what you should expect. Don't think that they had one personality when they were on your big screen or when they were on your small screen. And now that they're in the White House, they're going to become something different. They've always shown you who they are. And remembering that and saying like, yeah, that's exactly what I expected from him. That's why I didn't vote for him because I knew he was never going to live up to being president. I think right. is important specifically for the Republican Party because you've tried this twice. And in one situation, he led to the worst healthcare ep- epidemic in all of human history that is still killing people left and right. He is also the reason that we can never control inflation because of trickle down economics. And now you have a, another TV star president that led an insurrection. So yeah, I do agree. We shouldn't give them grace, but we should help them recognize that just because you liked him when he was a casual everyday American does not mean he is qualified to be president. I'm glad that's where you took it because I don't want to fall into the trap of of using the TV star as a permission structure for him to be an absolute lunatic. Absolutely. Last Tuesday, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Respect for Marriage Act in a 267 to 157 vote, with 47 Republican members joining the unanimous Democratic majority in passing the bill. The bill aims to codify both interracial marriage and same-sex marriage, two rights given by landmark Supreme Court decisions, the right to interracial marriage being granted in the 1967 ruling of Loving v. Virginia, and the right to same-sex marriage being granted in the 2015 ruling of Obergefell v. Hodges. The bill will repeal the Defense of Marriage Act of 1996, or more commonly known as DOMA, enshrine legal same-sex marriage for the purposes of federal law, and add legal protections for marriage 
for married couples for the sa- of the same sex. The bill also repeals provisions that do not require states to recognize same-sex marriages from other states and replaces them with provisions that prohibit the denial of full faith and credit or any right or claim relating to out-of-state marriages on the basis of sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin. This effort to codify these fundamental privacy rights that were granted under the 14th Amendment comes after a concurring opinion by conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas in the Dobbs v. Jackson decision overturning Roe v. Wade, citing a need to revisit the decisions in Griswold, Lawrence v. Texas, and Obergefell, which granted the right to contraception, legalized same-sex relations, and the right to same-sex marriage, respectively. The bill will now be sent to the Senate where there is hope that it could possibly garner the 10 Republican votes needed for the bill to surpass the threshold for a filibuster, with Republican Senators Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Tom Tillis, Rob Portman, and Ron Johnson having voiced that they would likely support the bill. New York Democrat Representative Mondier Jones, who is a co-author of the bill who is and is also openly gay, emphasized the importance of Congress stepping in to perfect, protect same-sex marriage rights, saying, quote, Imagine telling the next generation, my generation, we no longer have the right to marry who we love. Congress cannot allow that to happen, he said. Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the bill would, quote, enshrine into a law of a fundamental freedom, the right to marry whomever you choose. As radical justices and right-wing politicians continue their assault on our basic rights, Democrats believe that the government has no place between you and the person you love, she said. Terrell, Caleb, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I know what your beliefs and thoughts on this are, but I'm I'm curious what your thoughts on this are politically. Um, I have been this act specifically is what I've been kind of talking about, and uh, in previous episodes about wanting the Democratic Party and, and and the Biden administration to to get caught trying on every single one of these things, whether they're going to pass or not, because it is this. And it's not just virtue signaling, signaling because it is the, it shows that there are limitations to our power and it tells our base and it tells the American people that we're not willing to just step back and not even try because we see the the, the structure of our power being limited uh, limited and unable to achieve maybe what we want outright. But I think that it's things like this where we push the Republican Party to have to take hard votes. I, when was the last time that we got 47 Republican votes in the House on something that was a social issue? That is, and that is that is that is a pretty remarkable thing. And yes, same-sex marriage. I mean, at this point, like, and especially as a conservative, if you have a conservative ideology of the Constitution, there's a there, there's really no there is really no excuse to not vote for a a a law that codifies the right to marriage because it is privacy. Um, but I want to know what your guys' thoughts are. I can see Terrell has plenty. Doesn't he always? <laughs> I mean, yes, I am. <laughs> but like, I just there it is. <laughs> I don't, where I like to play conservative sometimes, this is one area where I genuinely just It's a just terrible cannot. game. I hate when you play it. I know you do. Um, but this is one area where I genuinely just cannot. The fact that 157 Republicans voted against interfaith marriage, interrace marriage, and sexuality is asinine. Like, that's the only word I can, I can think of. It, you can't make an argument that, well, because they included the homosexuals, we don't support the idea that mixed race people can exist. We don't support the idea that a Catholic and a Jewish person can marry. Like, it's asinine. And the fact that the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, who by and large, what I'm seeing and hearing, could very well be the majority leader after midterms because people don't seem to care can't even say that he supports this bill, which is a one-page bill that just explains 
Everyone has a right to marry someone that they love. He can't even agree to that. He says, well, I have to see the language of the text first. It's a one fucking page bill, Mitch McConnell. Don't play this bullshit political game when your party has always been and continues to be a dying party of dying ideals. Well, you that's have, what I was just going to add, you have so, yeah, a party that surprisingly is more diverse. You have more women in your party who are impacted by these types of laws and, and actions. You have men in your party who probably have mistresses that if this doesn't pass, they can no longer see them. I just, I, I, I'm very angry. I just want to throw senators under the bus because we all know they're sleeping I around. I was like, mistresses? What? We all know that they're sleeping around with people. <laughs> Things have been leaked. People now never. This is just me being an asshole. Um, but it's it's infuriating that you have their base saying, well, we don't want this bill to pass because the government is going to be involved in us making decisions on who we love. This The Supreme Court just wants the states to decide. And that gives it back to the people because they have successfully ruined political education in this country for their party, allowing them to think that there's a separation between government and states when they are the same thing. The Supreme Court is actively trying to make it so that they don't have a choice. And it's ironic that the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, cannot say he even supports interracial marriage when he's been talking about why Clarence Thomas deserves to be on the fucking bench and he is married to a white woman. So that's why I, I have a lot to say, and I'm going on a small rant here, because 157 Republicans could not agree to a one-page bill that just allowed people to marry who the fuck they wanted to marry. Things already decided by our Supreme Court, and if they believed so strongly that these were not in jeopardy the same way that Roe v. Wade was, then they would have no problem voting for it, but they use that as a reason not to, which is is quite frankly just ridiculous i mean it's it's not it's not even a, a point and that's what i was talking about terrell about like technically conservative ideology not christian conservative ideology not a theocracy not conservative theocratic ideology but a conservative ideology if you are a conservative then then yes like there is no reason that your ideology should not push you to vote for this for this bill but we all know that they are pushing for a a a white christian theocracy in this country and that's what motivates their their voting not actually a conservative constitutional ideology and it's fucking maddening and and to that point and i'll let you come in caleb so i apologize because of course terrell and i have a lot to say on this topic but you know one bitch i'd like to call out right here on the mic is representative glenn thompson who voted no on the damn bill last last week and then literally days later as in this past weekend went and had his gay son's wedding these bitches are so hypocritical that I am. I I I, I just w hope that everyone has watched my evolution. Our listeners are listened to my evolution of how much I used to center um, decorum in these kinds of conversations with people that I disagree with with the Republican Party, even if I disagree with them, because I feel like that is that is the kind of. Uh, the social discourse that we should be having in our society, our civil discourse we should be having. But at this point, like I cannot keep accepting the premise that any of these people are good faith actors, that they're actually operating from a space of, of true ideology and not just hatred or, or Christian theocracy. I have no time to continue to accept that premise because at that point I am just a fool.
and I'm not going to keep doing it. And I just want to let everyone know that's where I'm at mentally. It's not that I don't think there's value in those things, but it's that if I did that, it means I have to, the, I, at the foundation, respect their approach to this conversation and, and this disagreement. And I don't because it's not. Go ahead, Caleb. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We, we kind of dominated there a little bit. No, no. I, I think everything you guys said was very important I and needed to be said, to be honest. I Maybe I'm just... I just echo, I think, what how both of you feel about how the Republican Party has approached this. Um, I'm in a very deep cynicism with that party, I think, as many are. So I seeing that like what 40 Republicans voted yes in it in the House, I'm gonna be honest, that surprised me a little bit. And the fact that Ron Johnson is possibly a sponsor of it in the Senate doesn't well, he needs to win to his me. re-election in Wisconsin. Not That's a sponsor. He he actually criticized it but said I've already like made my position clear on same sex marriage years ago, but I do think that this that this bill is a is a political stunt. But yes, I would I would support same sex marriage. So he's supporting it because he knows that he's in an election year, but he obviously couldn't couldn't hurt couldn't help himself but to criticize the effort itself. I just I think that the Democratic response to this, to the Supreme Court ruling of Roe v. Wade, um, in terms of putting a bill like this through, is good, and I think they need to continue to do it, um, even if it does fail, because we do need to highlight that. Look, we need to vote more Democrats in if we want this stuff to happen. Um, it's not as simple as having fifty anymore. We need to have a majority, a true majority, to do stuff like this. Um, so, I mean, I don't know it. I just, the Republican Party is just so disgusting with these issues. And I'm just, I'm happy that Democrats are doing it like this. My fear is that some um, in the Democratic Party will just be more angry at Democrats and be apathetic in the elections or not vote for them in general because they want to filibuster gone to do this. And I'm sorry, but that's just not reality. Mm-hmm. Which is, but that, but that was why I was like, I want to give kudos about like the the getting caught trying, which we talked about in, yes. in recent episodes. Like this was a really good example of that. Like if it doesn't get passed, like I, I'm I'm better off with this scenario where we try to push it through like this than the scenario where we say we want to do this but we just can't get the vote, so we're not even going to try. Because that's what makes us look just so fucking weak. Like we're not willing to fight it for anything, and we 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 need to keep. We can't keep saying on campaign trails and at rallies and as we knock doors that we are the party that's fighting for people's individual rights and, and quality of life. But then we constantly use procedural um, roadblocks as our reasoning for not being able to fight harder or pursue those things. And I think this was a, a display of doing so even when maybe we won't be successful. Get caught trying. I agree. I agree. Let's check out the international vote. Continuing our coverage on the Ukraine Russian war After several dialogues between both Ukraine and Russia, news has broke that on Friday, July 22nd, a deal mediated by Turkey and the United Nations was struck between both of those countries um, to begin exporting millions of tons of grain stuck in Ukrainian ports, um, hopefully to address the growing global food shortage. Almost immediately after this news, Russian forces threatened the terms of the tentative agreement in a tactical strike on the port of Odessa. However, in a news conference held on Monday, President Zelensky assured Ukraine would move forward with the shipments as they were honoring the agreement. 
on the battlefield, Kiev is looking to mount a counteroffensive um, to reclaim Kherson, uh, the first city to fall during the Russian invasion located in southern Ukraine, taking advantage of some weakened Russian um, front lines, as we mentioned in our last episode, due to anti-missile technology they've received from the U.S. On a geopolitical note, Russian oil giant Gazprom um, announced they would further diminish Germany's supply to 20% starting Wednesday. While the company cites damage to turbines, Germany's economy ministry felt this was another attempt to punish Europe for their opposition to the war. We at Dangerous Likely will continue to follow the conflict taking place in Ukraine and update you as we learn more. Check out our Facebook and Twitter pages for more consistent updates throughout the week. Normally, I would take a moment to hit some high-level stories across the globe. However, on Saturday, the World Health Organization, WHO, declared the monkeypox outbreak a global health emergency, a rare designation that signifies this as a threat to global health, to global health necessary of an international response. As an organization, Dangerously Likely is committed to combating misinformation in our media intake. Also, as a show that has two openly queer hosts, it feels rather important to speak to the incorrect and harmful narrative coming out of the U.S. markets when discussing this virus. Monkeypox is a virus similar to that of smallpox, which was eradicated in 1980. A part of the orthopox virus family, monkeypox is not as fatal or as transmissible as smallpox, but poses a risk with the increased spread this specific year. What is important to know is that this is not a new virus. Monkeypox was discovered in 1958, with the first human case being recorded in 1970. Until tw- until this year, 2022, nearly all human cases were linked to Africa. I really want to emphasize this point. Nearly every case until recently has been in Africa, but now the international community is starting to pay attention. Interestingly, the first United States outbreak was back in 2003, um, but this outbreak was linked specifically to a pet prairie dog. The virus is spread through human-to-human contact. It is not an exclusively sexually transmitted disease, as you can contract monkeypox from respiratory droplets, touching a rash, skin-to-skin lesions, or sexual activities. Again, I really want to emphasize this point as we see the federal government paint this as an exclusively gay and bi-male health concern. Viruses are never discriminatory, and the willfulness of any government to promote such an idea is harmful to our collective health. There are currently 3,487 cases in the United States with roughly 18,095 cases globally as of July 25th. As we rapidly approach the academic year, it is on all of us to remain educated on this virus and the challenges that it could potentially pose. Only picking out queers in a group is not helpful. Children can have and contract this virus as we highlight it through their transmission. And when we're looking at an academic year, both in colleges and in elementary schools, where young children may be interacting with one another, or college friends might be excited to see one another, this narrative can pose a lot of damage. I went on a couple tangents this episode, but Caleb Torrance, do you guys have anything you would like to add? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you put it pretty well, Terrell. I 
I will be real. I have not been paying attention to this outbreak as much as I probably should have, should be. Um, basically, what I know is that our response to it is bad as usual. <laughs> so there's that. But I've also seen some interesting, um, like some interesting health decisions, like how uh, uh, the vaccine is only for specific persons, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not really sure how they would figure out some of who those people are. I feel like it's very easy to get around that, but very much, I think you have, you're pulling it up right now, Terrell. Yes. <laughs> you reminded me it is. So they'd like you to out people, yourself, right? Um, yeah. For people to receive the vaccine, they have to meet all of the following requirements. They have to be gay, bisexual, or a man who's had sex with another man or a transgender, gender nonconforming or gender non-binary individual. They have to be 18 or older, and they have to have had multiple or anonymous sexual partners in the last 14 days. They have to meet all three of those qualifications to receive the vaccine. I'm literally never going to ever fulfill those requirements. Me either. Yeah, but a lot of people say they just lie. This is like, I don't understand why our response to viruses and potential pandemics and pandemics is just always so lackluster and bad. Well, it's because people are idiots for starters. It really is. I mean, this is so frustrating, I think specifically because it is maddening, but also just like drives you fucking crazy when you think about watching our media and health organizations bungle this just the same way they did with AIDS as far as messaging goes. Mm -hmm. And also coming off of, of literally two and a half years of a pandemic where we got all of the fucking information about how viruses are spread, about about um, droplets, about aerosol that comes from, from your breathing in the air, about um, fluid contact. Um, I, if you guys didn't know, because you guys are all, you know, when it's that widespread, we don't just blame it on the gay people, but you can also get uh, COVID from sex, sexually transmitted as well. Why? Because it's a transfer of bodily fluids. It has nothing to do with being gay or being straight or being bisexual. It's a transfer of bodily fluids. That's what it is. That's all it is. And, you know, I ain't got any experience, but I'm pretty sure that's what happens when straight people have sex, too. Mm-hmm. Fucking idiots. It's so it's just so <laughs> frustrating. It, 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 I can't get over it because it seems like we continuously repeat the same mistakes over again as a country. I mean, almost like it is our theme song. And I just fear that. No fear. I know that when we frame something like this, it results in more people dying. It results in people not not spurring to any action to in for preventative measures because of one, their bias and 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 deciding that it doesn't affect them, it doesn't impact them, and they don't care because it's just about homosexuals and bisexuals and the sexual deviants, etc. Right? And so then they don't feel any responsibility to do their part. But I, it just it, it's a little maddening. I'll Your sexual that. deviant part is also really important, Torrance, because. Uh, I was very intentional to include the academic year there. If we allow for governments to set this up as an exclusively male to male transmitted type disease, similar to AIDS and HIV, um, we're going to walk into an academic year where children very well will contract monkeypox. If they interact with another child who has a rash and hasn't been tested for it, they will get this. And it sets up a very unfortunate and very uncomfortable situation for teachers going into an already tumultuous year where now parents can accuse them of 
inappropriate things with no rationale because we've allowed for the government to paint this narrative that this disease is exclusive to queer men when it is not. And 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 that's why I I always appreciate this podcast because we can break out that misinformation. Well, and I want to say like that, that, that one that you sent is not the, uh, that we looked at was not the national CDC because I do know that specifically I I watched it. Uh, Dr. Fauci on television from his lips to my ears that this is that this is not and he could not want to be more clear this is not a specifically gay and queer disease like he was very adamant about that obviously he was also at the forefront of that same messaging for AIDS in the 80s too but you know I don't want to say this is an entire bungle by our federal government but the combination of ignorances is is dangerous yeah and it's mostly who yeah and we'll be right back And we're back with Dangerously Likely. So this week, we're going to do a legislative lowdown on the reform of the Electoral Counts Act. So we last back. Week, <laughs> so last we ain't week, done one in a while. A bipartisan group of senators announced a deal on reforming the Electoral Counts Act. This act outlines the process of casting and counting electoral college votes. And it came into focus after this January 6th insurrection when Trump wanted then Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election in his largely ceremonious role. Joe Manchin and Susan Collins actually led the effort, and they have 16 co-sponsors, including nine Republicans. Even Mitch McConnell is open to updating this law, or at least he has signaled it. We'll see what happens. Uh, many experts have Quote, unquote, the sympathetic. Law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Many experts have criticized the law, calling it unclear about the roles of the Vice President and Congress in certifying the election results. So currently, the law states that only one House member and one senator are needed to challenge any state's set of electors. As a reminder, there were a lot more Republicans in both the House and the Senate to challenge state electors um, for the 2020 election. The new update would change that threshold to 20% of the members of each chamber needed to challenge an individual state's electors. Some other updates include... Uh, it includes a number of reforms that ensures that Congress can identify single conclusive, a single conclusive slate of electors from each state. It ensures that Congress can only accept a slate of electors from a state's governor. This would ensure that there are not multiple officials uh, uh, competing or sending competing slates to Congress. Uh, it provides an expedited judicial review, which will be a three-judge panel with direct appeal to the Supreme Court of certain claims related to a state's uh, certificate identifying its electors. It also requires Congress to defer to state to slates of electors um, submitted by a state's executive pursuant to the judgments of state or federal courts. It also clarifies that the vice president presides over the joint meeting of Congress and does not have any power to determine, accept, or reject disputes over elections. This basically means that the VP doesn't have any power to overturn an election or really do anything in general, just very much a ceremonial role of presiding over this proceeding. Um, And the new law uh, also overturns an old 1845 law that could be used by state legislators to override the popular vote in their states by declaring a quote, failed election, uh, unquote, which is a term not defined by law. Instead, the legislation specifically, specifies that a state could move its presidential election day only if necessitated by, quote, extraordinary and catastrophic events. So obviously we want to get into this. Uh, Another bipartisan deal is coming out. And while obviously we would love to see more in terms of securing our elections, um, 
this act, I still think is a pretty important one to really clarify what happens on that day. So we don't run into another potential uh, January 6th once again. Um, Terrell, Torrance, would you like to uh, uh, comment? What do you think this will do for the future? Is there any context you would like to add? Um, Terrell, why don't we start with you? I just want to lift up for our listeners the importance of this bill. Um, This is reforming an act that was passed in 1887. Our electoral system has not been updated, modified, thought about since 1887. They didn't have sliced bread at this point. They didn't have cars. The world was such a different place and the way that our country wasn't even fully formed by 1887. All the states did not exist. So while this is important as a catalyst and a response to what we saw um, on January 6th, it's also important to recognize that in a healthy democracy, these conversations should be happening more frequently and these type of ideals should be more um, free flowing when you recognize that your country has changed a lot since the 1800s. Beyond that, however, I do think it is an interesting bill for everyone to champion, um, and especially in the face of a lot of progressives arguing for the about the uh, the abolishment of the electoral college, um, the focus on people's voice and popular vote. This bill does not tackle or reach any of those pieces. It really just reforms the system we currently have to ensure that no state, no government entity can ever over or supersede the will of the people. So. I'm really intrigued to see how, if this is to pass, um, because there's only nine Republicans right now and Mitch McConnell may be our lucky number 10. I'm really intrigued to see how both sides argue this, because obviously um, the Republicans will argue that this is what good um, governance looks like. That's why they signed on. But I'm intrigued to see how conservatives bring in progressive minds who are very anti um, keeping the Electoral College. I also wanted to add, because I don't know, Caleb, if you provided this piece of information, uh, that the draft legislation also um, provides for a very specific uh, a specific outline of how federal resources can be given to uh, either both candidates in the, in the event that there's a standoff on the election to begin the transition process, which uh, the impetus was that was following the standoff over the presidential transition in 2020 when Trump administration officials initially refused to provide the Biden um, campaign with funding and office space to begin preparations for assuming power. Um, so just, you know, fixing more of their bill, their bullshit uh, with this with this bill. I would say that I, I'm with you on this, Terrell, in that one of my main criticisms, or not necessarily criticisms, frustrations, uh, is that this this that we as a Democratic Party have been trying to pursue um, an increase or protections and voting rights across the country since the 2020 election because so many state uh, legislatures have been passing much more restrictive uh, voting measures. And of course, we're working with the Republican Party that, is, that has done that at the national level, shot, shot down any efforts of that at the national level several times since 2020 at this point. Um, I mean, I truly do hate it because I, I can be grateful and not allow good to be the enemy of great because something did need to be done to 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 change the language of these laws that allowed for them to exploit them and create such chaos such chaos in our transition of power um but do i think this goes remotely far enough to actually um protect our our executive branch in our in our in our government from having a a seamless transition of power and and protect us from some of the 
uh, insane unconstitutional actors, uh, specifically on the on the conservative side of our uh, of the aisle. I, I don't think it does anything much to do to do about that, but I think that procedurally it allows for some more protections um, so that we don't see such a asinine standoff on the day of certification by um, dim-witted representatives and senators from from conservative states who know damn well that what they're doing and 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 did so anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think that 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 increasing that threshold to twenty percent of the chamber um, is commensurate with like if you know if if we can if we can not certify an election with just two people objection objecting or at least hold up the certification of an election with only two people objecting that just really flies in the face of this procedural uh, the procedural importance that we've placed on say impeachment where it's got to be which obviously that's outlined in the constitution itself and is different from a, a law passed by Congress like this. Um, but I just think that when we're talking about the power to change the executive, that, that it's really important that those thresholds are similar, that they aren't something that can be done really vanilla. And I also think that it speaks to our, our inability as a country to update our laws, to reflect our values, the times, the changes in society, that we have um, this law that hasn't been touched since 1887, when it was also uh, the impetus for writing that one was a chaotic election that took place uh, where a democratic uh, democratic Sam Tilden won the popular yeah. vote, but didn't, but didn't win the presidency because of the electoral college and challenges to, to electors in Southern States, which we are literally seeing happen again. I don't know if it's this deja vu episode we're having, um, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I thank you for bringing that up. Cause that was what I was going to highlight. We can't allow, for a threat to democracy to become the means for reform. Like the bill that's being reformed right now only happened because like you highlighted, an election did not go the way people anticipated. There became a lot of questions and and confusion and uncertainties around democracy. Congress responded. This one is a little bit different because if it wasn't for the Jan 6 committee, I don't know if we would even be here or have this conversation. I think the Republican party has very much, um, relinquished their role to supporting democracy, but we can't keep allowing the unforeseen or the worst possible outcome to be the thing that tells us, oh, right, this is a democracy we have to keep, that we have to care about. These should be conversations that we're frequently having. These should be um, ideals and things that we're constantly talking about. But even further beyond that, while this is all well and good in the intentionality of the institution of the election, we can't ignore, and Torrance is really going to appreciate this, we can't ignore the fact that it's still difficult for people to vote in this country. It is still mm -hmm. difficult for individuals to genuinely lift up their voice. So while this is ensuring that the electors can carry out the will of the people, the will of the people is still being stagnated. Um, so very much as you highlighted, Torrance, um, it's a great compromise, but it can't become the end all be all. This can't be the place. And to the point of two people being able to um, to object to the election, um, again, that's a highlight of the last time we've talked about this was in the 1800s. Our country was nowhere near as big as it is today. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, it did seem like a rather foregone thought. Also important to think about at that space in time senators were not directly elected by the people. They were actually appointed by their state legislatures. So there was this different kind of operation that was happening within our congressional system. Um, and now we have moved past that. We have changed. And it is very important that this bill will hopefully reflect those changes. This is very much, this bill I think represents a very small piece 
to a broader puzzle that we're all talking about of what needs to be done in this country. I really liked what you said about um, like a challenge to democracy itself should not be the means to reform. Um, I think it's just so important that we highlight that because there's so many things like many people in this country for years have been talking about why the voting systems have been bad and discriminatory and just not working. They're not, you know, and there's states that are actively uh, trying to tighten up uh, regulations around voting, which is a fundamental right for us. And I think like while this, I'm, while I'm happy that that something can be done with this electoral count act, um, like I said before, it's just a really small piece to a much bigger puzzle of really reforming um, our elections in this country to to update it with the times and to stop bad actors from uh, making it harder to participate in a democracy, mm-hmm. challenging a democracy. Um, I'm going to get into kind of a two-pronged thing here, um, which I hope that this uh, satisfies our listeners who see us as the context kings. Um, And I don't know necessarily that I, what I'll say will be incredibly conclusive, but it's things I've been thinking about. It normally is. Yeah, right. Well, no, because I just think that a lot of this is about having good um, academic and scholarly debate and and civil discourse. And two things I've been thinking about in reference to this is in something, Terrell, I'm going to continue what you both said and echo it, which is... It is very dangerous that we have a political a government, but a political system that allows for us to not address our the systems of our government in a more frequent and timely manner, and that it requires an insurrection, a coup, in a coup by a sitting president um, to urge us to rewrite laws from oh, 130 years ago. Um, to to protect our democracy. I think that there's something fundamentally wrong with not having addressed that prior to now or the fact that we don't have more updated laws than over 130 years ago. I know that we have talked about this in terms of other constitutions, how other hundreds of other countries in the world and, and democracies have uh, used our constitution as a, as a framework, but have left out the electoral college um, and have provided for a stronger federal federal government, which I think a lot of people forget because, of course, it's something we learn in like seventh grade or, or freshman year of high school and then take a test and never talk about it again. But, you know, a, a, a trend in this country that, that I'm seeing again and, and, and kind of the central theme of my entire uh, dialogue on this episode about repeating history is that a lot of people don't remember, and I, I'm in preparation for law school, so like I've been reading the Articles of Confederation and, and the Constitution Convention and the Constitution right now, and it just reminds me that like, you know, we did have the Articles of Confederation prior to the Constitution and the lack of strength of our federal government and the disparate rights and economies, et cetera, and regulations over the over the states at that time are what are what led to the Constitutional Convention and our U.S. Constitution because we needed to have a stronger federal government if we were actually going to be a United States of America. Um, and We've, we've watched that happen then. We got the Constitution, thought we were fixing it. We saw it happen again with Jim Crow by decentralizing the federal government and allowing these disparate rights in in, in states, which, which, which led to 40 years of um, 
civil unrest in our country uh, along racial lines. Um, and now we see, again, a movement in that direction with the Supreme Court who has gutted the Voting Rights Act, which was a large part of the solution to the to the last vote, you know, state rights situation with civil rights and voting rights, correct? With Jim Crow. Um, we see that we have a Republican Party who refuses, who refuses to update um update our laws, our voting rights laws after the after it's been gutted um, by the Supreme Court. Um, and it takes something as far as the coup to push them to take any action on, on our electoral laws. And it's just sickening. It's irresponsible. And yeah, we know that they're, that, that party is an irresponsible governing party. But I just think that as Am- Americans need to understand that like, this is not the first time there's a lot of context that can be offered here. And that's why I think people like scholars and people who are students of history understand that the game that the Republican Party is playing is dangerous. It is hostile to democracy. We've said that many times. And it shouldn't take bringing our democracy to the brink to spur any action from, from a, 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 an actual patriotic American uh, uh, political party. But they're not. We know that's bullshit. So I, I just want our listeners to remember that like, there's a lot of context to be offered here. There's, there's questions that we need to ask ourselves that may not be answered in our public discourse, but as to inform our voting, our activism, we have to remember that like, we have a, a history that is important to know because it helps us make informed decisions and not to repeat mistakes in the future. And I see us doing that right now. And I, I, I would implore people of our generation to take it upon themselves to, to learn more about our history, to revisit the, the Articles of Confederation and the Constitutional Convention and understand how these founders who were, quote unquote, supposed to be so brilliant to build this country, what kind of thought and mistakes we made first before we found ourselves at a constitution that has lasted 200 years. I just would implore everyone to go and do that because it really has opened up my eyes to uh, the many times that we've repeated our mistakes. And in traditional fashion, don't allow for Susan Collins, who's one of the lead Republicans on this, to take this as an opportunity to explain why the Republican Party does matter or why they need to be supported. If you are a person who cares about democracy, if you're a person who cares about government and governance, if you're a person who cares about your voice in government, um, these midterms are important because this bill would not happen with the Republicans. There are only nine Republicans currently guaranteed to pass this bill through the Senate. We need one more. Every single Democrat wants this to happen. Every single liberal or left-leaning, if you will, person recognizes the importance of passing legislation like this to ensure that democracy is um, fortified and moves forward. So, in traditional fashion, of course, I have to bring up that call to action that the conservative party is not a party that is looking out for your best interest. And if you don't mind me adding in, uh, I just want I, I meant to say this. Uh, I think it's a good bridge to what you were mentioning is accountability. We want to make sure that people know what their elected elected officials are doing when it comes to these these pieces of legislation. So as we referenced, there are 16 co-sponsors of the bill, nine of them being Republicans. And I just want to tell you guys who those people are. Um, because I, one, I think that you should know. Um, so there are other Republicans in addition to, to Senator Collins from Maine is um, Senator Moore Capito of West Virginia, Senator Graham of South Carolina, Murkowski of Alaska, Senator Portman of Ohio, Romney of Utah, Sass of Nebraska, Tillis of North Carolina, and Todd Young of Indiana. And our Democratic uh, senators on this are uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Warner of uh, Virginia, Senator Cardin of Maryland, Coons of Delaware, Senator Murphy of Connecticut, and Senator Senator Shaheen of New Hampshire. Oh, and our favorite, our old wine gal, Miss Miss Senator Kristen Cinema from Arizona. <laughs> Hold them accountable, friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what voting is all about, right? Accountability. <laughs> 
but also like a future outlook of what America should be, right? Um, well, I think I think you two wrapped it up quite well. <laughs> I don't know if I have much else to say on this. I I think you got the low down. I think that's what you were going for. Exactly. <laughs> Missed opportunity. You got the legislative low down right here at Dangerously Likely. And uh, if I do say so myself, we'll be right back. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously likely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes and maybe even drop a rating or a comment or two. It's been a minute, but um, take us on a tangent, Torrance. Yeah, I'll take you on my third for the day. Um, so, <laughs> so actually, I've been putting a lot of thought about this, um, and I came up with what I knew I would say today, uh, yesterday, because um, as I mentioned, I am you know getting ready to start law school in a couple of weeks, and I thought for pretty much all of my, I mean, most of my college and high school years, what I would, what kind of law I wanted to study. Uh, I throughout my entire application process, LSAT process, I was very sure about what that is. And I still feel pretty strongly about it. But I, I find myself as we get closer to the decision of what I should focus on. Um, I keep on coming to this conclusion about like my feelings of insurmountability. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I've said consistently that I want to study constitutional law and civil rights. Um, and then I obviously want to work in work in policy and in government. Um, but when I look around at the world, I truly, our country specifically, I just truly feel like there are so many insurmountable problems, or at least seemingly insurmountable problems that that give me such pause. And um, in a non-obviously egotistical or narcissistic way, like I, I want to put my my talents and my knowledge in in the right spot that are going to be the most effective and have the strongest impact. Um, and, and I think about everything from healthcare and how corrupt and exploitative it is, it is in our country, um, and and the billions and billions of dollars that are spent in propaganda uh, to warp the, the the minds of our of our fellow citizens that force us all to pay hundreds and thousands of of more dollars than than other people in other other free developed countries that we while getting some of the lowest outcomes in the world for a developed country i, I the education problem and the, and the the criminal underfunding and privatization occurring across our country that's impacting our our society and and their educational level and our ability to be competitive in the world we expect as a society and as a country to have some of the highest exports in the world, to be the richest co country in the world, but we are continuously not investing in education and not investing in opportunity. We want the highest productivity and highest engagement without investing in any of those things, and it's criminal. And then I think about family law and how we just how we just overturned Roe v. Wade, and now people are not going to have access to, to critical health care that they need um, and, and have access to abortion rights. And family planning and then we're going to have an, an, an increase in children in our well in our um in our, in our system in child protective services where we already have too many we don't have enough homes we don't have enough funds we don't have enough ad adoptions occurring and we are creating more poverty more trauma more mental health issues in these young people who go through the system without the proper care and support i think about the 
uh, what we just discussed, election law. Like I just keep looking at all these issues around me and it seems so seemingly insurmountable um, to, to achieve what we need to achieve as a society to keep moving forward and offer the quality of life that we continuously sell in the American dream. And I just find myself so concerned with like with with where to put my efforts and 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 what we're going to do as a people going forward and and, and I don't have anything specific to say about that but I, I just wanted to say it because I hope that our listeners know that like if they feel those fail- same feelings like they're not alone that even though we may seem like people who are in the trenches and doing and, and doing this work and educating ourselves and trying to be a good communicator and advocate for for other people our age and our fellow citizens that like we also feel that same sense of helplessness on days and we feel that this this same insurmountability of all these problems too and and i just want to let you know i'm, I'm there with you caleb you want to take us on a tangent sure torrance well said first of all um i think that i have been in this space of like oh man what's the word um I've just been in this space of cynicism, I think. And like, I think, first of all, before I get into it, um, I think we all have to be a little bit careful not to be fully in that, in that space at all times, because I think it's really, I think it's really unproductive, but um, I've just been like pretty cynical when it comes to like, I don't know, the January 6th stuff. I've just felt like, Look, the January 6th committee only has to convince one person, and that's the Attorney General Merrick Garland. And even if he goes after Trump, which I'm not confident he will, I don't know what happens there. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm cynical about people being held accountable in this country. But I will say that that I've been a bit surprised with these hearings, because although I haven't watched every single one of them, you know, the reception of them throughout the country is better than I thought it would be. There's a lot of polls showing even some Republicans are are on the side of yeah we should we should definitely um, take Trump to court for this stuff, and I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know if I was expecting a lot, but I think that the committee has done a really good job of understanding the media environment and then producing it accordingly. And I don't know how else they would be reaching people if they're not able to do that effectively. And they seem to be doing that. And while maybe I want it to be more, um, reach more than it is, I've been pleasantly surprised by that. And I'm looking a little bit more forward to the outcome than I was a couple weeks ago. So I think that's my tangent. I, I just you? wanted to say that if people didn't know that there was a, uh, that, that the House Select Committee uh, did hire a former news yes. producer to help produce the information, which like I would say that that was absolutely money well spent key absolutely yeah. key to yeah absolutely presentation key. and um, we know you can't help it terrell when cynical is your personality <laughs> take us on a tangent terrell I, like, I would like to point out that i work in a system that lifts up the voices of children and advocates for <laughs> their well-being um, both when they're part of the foster care system and in early childhood education so i am probably one of the least cynical people here um okay <laughs> tell that to the listeners <laughs> tell that to the children terrell Sometimes people need to hear like being cynical and being realistic are not synonymous. And sometimes we allow for those to be painted the same way. My fair myself included. Um, I think I'm going to give a spoiler warning actually, because I might get too in depth here. Um, On what? What's the spoiler about? Nope. (laughs) 
this weekend. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't with y'all. This weekend, Caleb and I were lucky enough to go see Nope in theater. But I haven't. I'm not going to give any spoilers away. I'm just giving a warning because I am going to speak about it in a general way. Um, and I just want to say, 10 out of 10, one of the better movies I've seen this year. Uh, granted, I think I've only seen two or three movies this year, so it's not saying a lot. Womp womp. There's been some good movies this year, I'll be honest. Yeah, yeah there has, yeah. Last time I said the best movie was Batman, and now I'm like, nope, it's nope. Yeah. The movies are back, said Nicole Kidman. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, <laughs> but Jordan Peele is just such a revolutionary director and creative mind, and... I recently saw, and I think it's probably the best endorsement this movie can ever get. Um, Logan Paul posted that Nope was the worst movie he's seen this year. He doesn't <laughs> recommend anyone seeing it. It was just categorically awful. And I think not only is that the best endorsement and reason to watch that movie, but that also proves that compared to other Jordan Peele movies that had some more subversive narratives and undercover narratives, this one seems to be hitting people whether they want it to or not, because if I had to picture a person who would be the Asian male um, in the movie, Logan Paul would be it in real life. This, <laughs> this, in, right? Like this individual. The Steven Yeun character? Yes. Thank yeah, you. Okay. I could not remember his name. Um, this individual who was, who was, just catapulted into celebrity status, never fully understood his reach and his bandwidth, um, but also catapulted into the status by tragedy and then never ended up using it for anything else, but to ignore that tragedy and just make it seem like his life is amazing. Like really, truly Logan Paul not liking this movie is because he saw too much of himself in it and recognized how just bad he is as a person. Damn goal. I was like, such um, poor I, character. Yeah. I genuinely cannot stand Logan Paul. And this comes from someone who had mixed feelings for the video that um, got him in this first controversy. But even beyond that. Um, I can't stand that bitch either. <laughs> even beyond that, though, the way that Jordan Peele was able to discuss race in a a different perspective and also give an idea of what an outsider might think about our country specifically um, and how we approach race was just so well thought out and our ability to ignore the obvious because we get caught up in life, our ability to, um, to just, function in a society that isn't inherently functioning um, or is painting a certain type of functionality was just so well done. Um, So I recommend it. I won't give too much away. I'll just give you some narratives that you might pick up when you watch and say that if you like to process a movie multiple days after this is the movie for you. Also, it's not that scary. If you don't like horror movies and you're afraid that's going to scare you senseless, it's not scary. It's more of a thriller, I'd say. Yeah. This yeah. was, I was like three jump scares. Us was the only one that was like, I mean, I would say like kind of creepy, but like get out. And this like general theme of Jordan is like, yeah, it's like thriller horror, but it's, it's both the horror is the absolutely poignant social commentary. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, like that, that like literally freaks you out on a visceral level, something a monster under the bed could never do because it's like a mirror, a mm. true mirror, not your reflection, but well, the way sad. you actually are, motherfucker. <laughs> I am loose today, y'all. Sorry, I've been. I've when been aren't you still loose from our last episode? Well, I think that's our show. Those lips be <laughs> open. I was like, that was a subtle dig, bitch. <laughs> Mine wasn't subtle. Mine was very Cut that out. Keep it in. Cut that out. Keep it in. <laughs> the chaotic energy. <laughs> well, I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And I'm Terrell Couch. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week. Peace.